Hey, party people, welcome to the Patrama Party, where we chase our shots with tears of sadness. Just trying to get that sodium content. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez, and this week we're talking about grief. It is such a big, such a massive topic, and it can apply to so many areas of our lives. So to help us make some sense of it, I'm so happy to welcome psychotherapist Kevin Brody to the pod. Hi, Kevin. How are you? Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. I, well, yeah, I'm good. I, I want to be transparent. I want to be honest. I have been not good about the Roe v. Wade stuff. I've been like, you and nope. I chatted about that before. I've, I've just been kind of uh, really in my feelings about it, but I'm, <laughs> I'm set. And I mean, speaking of grief and I'll get to that later, but I'm, I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you so, so much for taking the time and to kind of intro you to everyone in the world, you're a Taurus. And I think maybe you're, you're the first Taurus son I've had on. Does, does Taurus. Oh uh, yeah, I think so. Do you feel like a Taurus? Does it resonate for you? I, you know, I guess so. There's some stuff about Taurus energy that doesn't feel like it resonates at all. Right. But I super resonate with the part of Taurus energy that's like, yes, I would like a comfortable home where I can take a nap and uh, care for my dear close friends. Like that sounds yeah. like, you know, uh, that stuff and like being like loyal, that all that stuff makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I I hear you too on like some stuff really fits and some stuff doesn't because that's true for me too with my sun sign. But what I love about Taurus is, is how grounded they can be. Like mm. they're, um, they love to be cozy and to make other people feel cozy and yeah. they, can ha- they can have a real calming effect, which is good for me because I'm like fire and air. So I like, sometimes I just need someone to help me, you know, come back down to earth. So I think that's actually a really nice, um, like if I'm thinking about traits for therapists, that would be a really nice one. It's just like that ability to make someone feel really at home. Oh, well, that's nice. That's a really nice, (laughs) that's a nice interpretation of that. Yeah, no, I do like me. I do like being cozy. I I'm a big, I, my general energy is like, if I could be cozied up and taking a nap, I probably would rather be. So that makes sense. <laughs> oh and I also kind of, totally, I kind of like making people feel that way. So that, that makes sense. So yeah, I can vibe on that. Okay, sure. cool, cool. Well, I'm stoked to get into this and I I'll start yeah. off by talking through some of my own experiences on this topic. And if you're moved to do so, feel free to interject with, you know, ideas, feelings, slam poetry, whatever comes up. Or <laughs> slam poetry, it, you know, should you feel moved? Um, or you can sure. just like hang out, doodle, sip a wine cooler, whatever you want. Either way, yeah. at, the, at the end, I'll turn some questions over to you. How does that sound? That sounds great to me. Okay, cool. Awesome. Okay. So when I started combing through this topic to prepare for today, I realized that it's hard for me to talk about grief not because I don't have any experience with it, but because when I started therapy a few years ago, I realized that a sense of grief was sort of underlying my emotional state at all times. 
was like, mm -hmm. yeah, like a low hum that could get triggered and feel really big sometimes. But even when I was feeling generally pretty good, it was just there underneath. It was like this heartache that just wouldn't ever really go away. Um, which, you know, if you read the definition of grief in the American psychology Associ association dictionary, it's defined as the anguish experienced after significant loss, usually the death of a beloved person. Well, I haven't experienced the death of someone I was super close to, but for me, grief is really about that anguish after a significant loss. Uh, and that, that loss can take on a lot of meanings. Yeah. So, so that's where I'll, I'll be putting my focus. Um, I talk a lot about anxious attachment style on the pod because I have it, <laughs> but I think if you're looking at any of the insecure attachment styles, anxious, fearful, avoidant, avoidant, you're talking about a significant loss early on, but maybe instead of like one swift shocking loss, it's more like a series of losses that like taken together, just make up a person's childhood. <laughs> I'm laughing. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I'm crying on the inside. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, aren't we all a little bit? Yes. But yeah. So far I'm, I'm right here with you. I'm following all this and I agree. Please continue. Okay. okay great. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Um, and I want to say like, I know that's sort of an, it, it's unorthodox in the discussion around grief, but since I was able to identify this feeling of constant grief that's been beneath the surface for me for so long, I want to zero in on why I think that is before I talk about some experiences that I think more readily fall into that definition of grief as the reaction we have to like a singular loss. So absolutely. Yeah. Okay, cool. So quick review. Our attachment styles are all formed when we're children and which attachment style we end up with later in life is determined by how our caregivers cared for us in our earliest years. For those of us who have anxious attachment, we had caregivers who were emotionally unpredictable and or who looked to us, their children, for emotional support rather than looking to provide us with emotional support. So for me, when my mom was loving and able to give me what I needed in the moment, and then soon after, like kind of switched to being scary or dismissive or to sobbing and needing my comfort or whatever it was, each of those moments was like reliving a loss all over again. Because as a child, I kept thinking that, you know, maybe this time she'll finally be happy and we can have a happy family. But then something would happen and she would cry and tell us that no one loved her or she would rage and scream at us. Or she would tell us we needed to go somewhere else if we wanted to cry because she didn't want to hear it. And every time it was like this renewed grief that I experienced again, like there would be this high when she was feeling good and I would feel really hopeful, like, oh, maybe now I'll get to have a loving, happy family. But then she would switch and I would feel alienated or ashamed or scared. And, in a, you know, in, a, in other words, uh, grief stricken. So that underlying grief that followed me around for so long and still does to some extent comes from feeling like I didn't have a loving, safe place where I belonged and was wanted. I just want to name that because I think we can become a little narrow in our idea of what grief looks like. But yeah, if you have any of the insecure attachment styles, I think you probably walked out of childhood in a state of what I think of as chronic grief that you know, sometimes that becomes depression or it becomes shutting down or it becomes anxiety or however it ends up looking in its evolution. That said, 
I've had experiences with grief that look more like how we're accustomed to talking or thinking about it, like the result of a singular loss. And the first one I'll talk about is the grief that I felt after I was sexually assaulted in 2017. I, I won't go into the assault itself, but I will say that the person who assaulted me was a very close friend. In fact, I'd say my best friend at the time. And after it happened and I made it clear to him that I couldn't have any kind of relation, like the friendship was done, essentially, he raged at me. He told me I was crazy and fucked up. And obviously that's all traumatizing. But in terms of grief, I remember that when I was finally able to sort through some of the emotional turmoil, I realized that a large part of the depression that I experienced after the assault was the loss of this friend, which was sort of shocking to me, you know, cause it like, I, I thought it was the experience. Like if you distilled all of it, the thing was the experience itself, but right, which of course was terrible, but right next to it was the fact that I had lost my best friend, this person who leading up to that moment had been by all appearances, supportive and kind and loving. And when the assault happened and I saw this part of him that was so unlike who I'd always thought he was, it was as if my best friend had died. And it was doubly the case because not only did I lose this person from my everyday reality, you know, I never saw him again after that, but it was as if he'd never existed in the first place because the person I'd befriended was kind and trustworthy. So it wasn't just like I, I lost someone who I very much loved. It was like, I found out the person that I loved had never existed. So I think another way of talking about that is the grief of betrayal, right? Like when you're betrayed by someone you trusted. Um, and I want to pause and say anyone who's ever like maybe been cheated on maybe can relate to this, but it's like, it's different from the grief of a breakup, for example, which is, which is its own grief and terrible. But, but I just want to, I just want to distinguish between the two. They're a little different because the grief of betrayal includes this additional anguish around realizing that your relationship with someone hinged on certain truths that were not true or, or maybe were never true. Right. So, so I, I guess like, as I was writing all of this, I was thinking about, um, a recent experience that I had. So part of my work as a writer, I sometimes interview celebrities and I recently interviewed Mae Martin about their show feel good, which an aside highly recommend the show feel good. Like so brilliant. It's loosely based on Mae Martin's own life and it deals with sexual assault in the show. The protagonist who's named May because it's based on May's life is very, very close with a man who sexually assaulted them in their teen years. They use they, them pronouns, by the way, in case I was confusing. So, so there's, so here they are in their twenties, I guess, in the show, maybe in their thirties. And they're still very, very close with someone who in the course of the show, they kind of come to realize sexually assaulted them when they were a teenager. And when I chatted with May, the person um, about the show for our interview, we talked about the grief of walking away from a toxic person you love and how complicated that is because of how hard it is to reconcile the loving parts of that person with the fact that they violated you. And 
one thing that may said that I really appreciated was that was like, knowing that you were violated by that person doesn't mean you all of a sudden don't have the urge to send them that song that you just found out about. That's so good. Or to send them that hilarious meme or whatever it is. Like you don't just shut off because you were betrayed. And even though in one sense, it's as if a person has died because the person you thought they were is suddenly gone because, because they're actually still alive. That loss lives alongside the very achievable desire to reconnect with them because they're still here on earth. You know, like you totally could send them a text. So I just want to name that there's this grief of walking away from someone who maybe doesn't have your best interest at heart, whether because they've assaulted you or abused you in some way, or because they don't know how to love or whatever. And that type of grief has its own traits. It's, it's tangled up with this temptation of reconnecting or this fear of seeing them out in the world or this shame of missing them even after what they did to you. And for me, that shame of wanting to reconnect was so loud. It was like screaming in my face all the time. And so was my pain around being assaulted that, that like I didn't really understand because of those other things, how deep my grief was around the loss of this person until I started therapy. And it was only when I started working with my therapist that I realized that making the decision to walking away from this person permanently was akin to experiencing a death. And in that way, I needed to have a lot of compassion for myself, not just for the physical trauma I'd experienced, but for the emotional loss of this person. The last example of grief I'll give from my own life is a more recent example. As I alluded to earlier, as I'm, I'm sure a lot of you know, the SCOTUS decision to overturn Roe v. Wade was leaked not long ago, Roe v. Wade being the Supreme Court decision from 1973 that federally protects a woman's right to choose. And I've dedicated a few therapy sessions to it since it happened. And actually, it took several sessions for me to realize that in addition to fear and rage and this sense of betrayal that I was going through around it, a lot of what was coming up for me was grief, which actually surprised me when I figured it out. But since the leak has come out, I have felt tremendous grief. And it's not because I'm worried that I won't be able to get an abortion if I need one, which is its own issue that I'll just sort of table because it's not pertinent. It's because suddenly I have lost this sense that at the end of the day, my country is on my team. Now with this imminent reversal of Roe, I feel hunted. I feel like people who hate me are now making decisions that impact my life. And not just me, but so many people I love and so many people who I don't know and will never meet, but who I can relate to and empathize empathize with in, the, in this very specific way. And what's interesting is in a lot of ways, it echoes what I experienced as a child in my family and also what I experienced after the assault. Like, like I talked about before, I never knew what to expect in my house growing up. Anxious attachment is about growing up around unpredictable emotions and behaviors. Like you'd think things were heading one way and then all of a sudden you're dealing with a very different reality. And I think for me, 
when Obama was elected, I felt very sure, like, yes, our country is not putting up with this anymore. Like we're headed in a progressive direction. And I felt like I could, I had the sense of relief that I could feel more safe and secure in my country. Of course, you know, when Trump was elected, that was terrifying. And, um, the, the exact opposite of how I felt before, but when Biden won four years later, even though like, you know, he wasn't my first choice, I still thought, okay, we're getting, we're getting back on track. That was like a blip on the radar. So there's this whiplash going on for me. I've gone from feeling like things were definitely headed toward progressive values and that I was going to be increasingly valued in my country to feeling like nothing is safe or secure. I am not safe. I am not secure in this country. And that Supreme Court precedent can be overturned. Like laws about my body are being decided by people who will never know what it's like to have a uterus and more to the, more to the point who hate me for having one. And so just like in the case of my friend who assaulted me, it's this shock of finding out that something you thought was absolutely true and solid no longer exists. And there's a sense of betrayal with that. The other part of this for me is that, and I know maybe a lot of people can't relate to this, but I want to put it out there for anyone who can. This has come up for me before on the pod, so this isn't new, but one of my deepest fears that I came out of my childhood with is men don't love women. They just use them for sex. And there is tremendous grief for me around that. And unfortunately, There is a lot of evidence to support that belief circling around us all the time from like, you know, rape and murder statistics to the wage gap. And, and now this SCOTUS news is no exception. And though, you know, I've, I've definitely made progress with that belief and I'm in a much better place with it than I've been in many years. I am kind of at all times just this close to throwing in the fucking towel and giving into that idea because it does feel safer to sit in that grief because it is a grief space, right? Like believing that no one loves you, <laughs> uh, you know, like taking this, this, this um, massive pool of humans and saying, no one, no one from this loves me, you know, right? Like that's grief. And, um, it's this way of shutting off to being vulnerable and, 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 and also to shutting down the vulnerability of hope, right. The, the hopefulness that that isn't true, I guess. I, yeah. It's not just because making misogyny, the law is this nightmare of my belief, like manifesting, but also because when this came out, just like when SB8 happened, the abs, you know, SB8 as a review, it's the absolutely fucking insane anti-abortion law in Texas. When that happened, like I hardly, and now with, with SCOTUS, I've hardly seen any guys post about it on social media. Like suddenly they just don't have shit to say about it. And man, that kicked my grief up in a real way. It's the grief of feeling collectively abandoned by men, the people who I thought we're supposed to protect me, which I totally know is antiquated and gendered and heteronormative and all of these things. But I'll, I'll be real. Like I was sort of force fed that idea growing up with all this Disney shit. And even though, and, and it was very comforting to me because my own dad was not a safe person. So it like at a very young age, I was like, okay, well, 
that's okay because, you know, I'll get married and then I'll feel safe and I'll feel loved. And like, you know, all of the, all of the things that Disney lies to us about, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I did, I grew up being fed that idea and the disillusion of not just watching that idea, not be true, but in fact, be the opposite of true that the, these people who I was told would protect me are actually my predators from like abortion law to sexual assault, to ghosting, to apathy in the face of my suffering you know, i.e. like not post, not posting on Instagram, which I know is like maybe a very silly thing, but also feels very important to me. Like it's all very overwhelming. So it's this grief, this loss of something I thought was secure, this loss of what I thought this country was fundamentally committed to becoming. And it's the loss of feeling protected and feeling like I'm valued of feeling safe and loved within the collective. It's this grief of feeling like I will never actually be loved as a heterosexual woman, not because there's something wrong with me or because it's just not in the cards for me in this lifetime or whatever, but because it's not possible because these people, and this is, this is the belief talking, right? These people are incapable of seeing me beyond a source of sex and reproduction. That's that's the grief voice that comes up. And even though I know logically it isn't true, the grief is so old and so deep inside me that it flares right back up. So what, what has helped me in all of this? Cause I always, I always try to like shed some light on what's, what's worked. So the first one that comes to mind is something I've learned to do through my witch who I work with. I work with a very good witch and she's taught me a very simple, effective tool for these moments of grief. It's to put a hand on my heart and say the words, this is a moment of suffering. Suffering is a part of life, something all living beings experience. May I be kind to myself and give myself the compassion that I need. I love that exercise because it helps me refocus and recenter and I move even if it's just slightly, I move out of the place where I'm in the grief and I'm sort of, I'm inseparable from the grief or the grief is inseparable from me and into this place where I'm comforted. And that comfort is something that I can give myself. Personally, I love being reminded that all humans suffer <laughs> uh, be, because I can feel really alone in my moments of grief. I can feel really isolated. So as much as I don't, wish suffering on anyone actually that's a lie there are some people if i'm being honest that i do wish suffering on but as much i mean real real talk right right I mean, yeah. yeah yeah i'm I not i'm not gonna lie it's to you hard. guys um some of them are on the supreme court what can i say you know that aside i also need to feel understood right so like i so it's a moment of reminding me that i'm not alone in this and and that small practice has been so useful it's just, it's just been such a good tool to have in moments when i feel overwhelmed by grief um, although I'll, I'll say it works for any uncomfortable emotion. Um, and then, you know, I, I do want to say healing grief. It's like, yeah, if only there were just a meditation, you know, a fucking like mantra we could do <laughs> that just like heals it. But the truth is it, ta it takes real time and effort. There's no shortcut. So if, if you were like me and you came out of your childhood, having experienced this sort of just like general malaise of like chronic 
consistent moments of grief that were just part of the family dynamic, there's a good chance that you need deep support that involves having your feelings validated. Um, I'll say like the first time I ever felt some kind of relief from those earliest grief wounds was when I got into Al-Anon and I got an Al-Anon sponsor. Like uh, if people aren't familiar with Al-Anon, it's a 12-step program for the friends and family of alcoholics that I got into because I had friends and family who were alcoholics. Um, but when I got in, I got a sponsor. And um, since I grew up around alcoholism, I talked to her about what my childhood was like. And I remember the first time I heard her say, she just, like, I, I told her story and she said, that sounds really painful. And I just remember that it was the first time anyone had acknowledged how painful my, um, childhood was, you know, no one had ever said that to me. And it was like this incredible rush of relief. So, you know, maybe you do need some kind of 12 step sponsor to help you with that. But I think more to the point, we need to feel deeply seen and heard and validated in that childhood pain. And I think a therapist can be a really good place to start, you know, someone who won't undermine or minimize your experience or tell you that like, oh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger or any of that, you know, shit that I actually, (laughs) that actually makes me really mad. So then I'm sad and mad on top of it. (laughs) Um, But just someone who can really be present with you in working with the grief you experienced as a child and the grief you'll probably experience as an adult mourning the childhood that you didn't get to have. And that, that process, it's a very long one and it's complex. There's, there's no, one answer for how to address that grief. But I think being validated in your grief is just absolutely fundamental or any way it was for me. If you have an anxious, hard agree on that. Okay. Yeah. You, yeah. You, you actually (laughs) as a therapist probably have some strong feelings about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you have anxious attachment style and you haven't already, I have an episode on healing anxious attachment style that could be super helpful. So, um, I'll put that out there. But one last thing I'll say about it is that no matter what your attachment style, even if you have secure attachment, look to your love languages to find out more about your childhood grief. And when I say that, I'm referring to Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages, which are words of affirmation, physical affection, acts of service, gift giving, and quality time. So my love languages are words of affirmation physical affection and quality time. And when I think about what I really needed that I didn't get as a child, it's those things. So that's where I have a lot of grief stored from my early years, you know, in those specific areas. So knowing what you didn't get, where there was chronic loss for you as a child will help you understand how to ask for what you need as an adult to help nurture and heal those old grief wounds. In terms of betrayal grief, finding out that someone isn't who you thought they were or that a relationship isn't what you thought it was and choosing to walk away from someone as a result. What helped me through that grief beyond talking through those emotions with my therapist was cuddle therapy. I'm very physical. I mentioned physical affection as one of my love languages. And I think we live in a culture where being held and spooned and caressed and hugged, those are all things that only feel socially acceptable to do with a romantic partner for the most part. So 
for those of us who don't have a partner and are in a grief process when like, maybe we really need to be held and hugged and spooned and all the things cuddle therapy can be instrumental in our healing process. One thing that's hard about cuddle therapy is that it's often only available in big cities. And of course, COVID has also thrown a big fat wrench in it. But if you're working through betrayal grief, being cuddled while you cry, like finding that place where you can feel physically safe and emotionally safe and like merging those two is so soothing to your nervous system, to that sense of loneliness and, and to that sense that it's not safe to trust. Like it challenges all of that in this really soothing, deeply soothing way. Um, in terms of the grief around Roe, there are two parts for me. One is the collective political grief, this feeling of being hunted by people in power and losing the country we thought we were living in, at least, you know, for now until things change. The best resolution I've been able to come up with for that is to be compassionate with myself, use the affirmation practice my witch taught me that I talked about earlier, and to channel that grief into action as much as possible. So lately I've been writing all my reps, my senators, my congressmen, I wrote the White House. I made calls. Um, I already donate to Planned Parenthood and the ACLU every month, but like, you know, maybe making one um, extra donation or something, going to protests, like all of these things. I think I may come across more tools as time goes on, but those, those are the ones I've been leaning on recently. And the strength in those is their ability to dissipate the feeling of powerlessness that sits beside that grief. I think this political grief can make us feel jaded and sort of fatalistic, like nothing I do matters. But the truth is that even though our country is a very slow learner, we have made strides only because people with progressive values made their voices heard. And when I remind myself that that's the power I have and I get to work, I don't sit in that terrible fear and that, um, yeah, that, that, that grief, that feeling that I'm on a train headed toward a wall with no way out. The second part of that is the way that it kicks up a belief that men don't love women. And that is such a complicated thing. I've talked about EMDR in the past, and that has helped me so much with my beliefs around men, particularly after I was sexually assaulted. If you want to hear more about EMDR, I actually talked about it in the last episode that we did on inter intergenerational trauma. So check that out if you're interested in learning about how it can help you rewire your brain and your traumatized beliefs. But what has really helped me with that belief lately, if I'm being totally honest, it's been watching the TikTok videos that men are posting about the SCOTUS leak. Um, and not all men, you know, some men are fucking dicks, but like, <laughs> you know, yeah, 100%. yeah. No. Oh, I know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but the men who like are really, really on our team watching their videos, um, like I'll be honest, very few of the dudes in my actual circle have been posting, like I mentioned, but there are a lot of men out there who are saying who, who are speaking out. And even though I don't know them, I'm getting a lot out of their posts because it's challenging my traumatized belief. It's reminding me that there are men in my collective who value me and care about my perspective and do want to protect me in the way that they can, you know, using their privilege. And, 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 and because they, it's because they want to see me thrive. Right. And like all of that, um, chips away at, at this, like, total, um, 
trauma mantra I have, which is like, men don't love me, fuck them, you know, (laughs) which, which like, it sounds angry, but it's actually coming from like terrible grief, like, like a terrible, deep, um, gutting sense of loss. So sometimes, you know, fucking TikTok to the rescue. So, okay. (laughs) Kevin, um, I'm so eager to ask you some questions on this topic and and get your perspective. So I'll start with this grief, you know, is about loss and loss can look a lot of different ways. Can you talk about the different ways we might experience grief, the different ways it can look at that maybe we wouldn't necessarily immediately recognize as grief. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you already kind of did a good job of doing that, to be honest. Yeah, I did a couple. That, like, I think, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I th- there's a general conception, I think, in this country uh, and then culture in this country that grief is relegated to death. Right. Right. Like we grieve when someone dies and that's it. And I think you've already done a really good job here of identifying and giving some examples about how that's a little bit limiting. You can grieve lots of stuff. Grief really is, as you said, it's a lot about loss. It's a lot about change Mm -hmm. and change. Yeah. Well, yeah. And in answering this question about like, what are different ways it could look like? It's like, well, to the things you were talking about, like we can grieve our relationships with our parents when we become adults and recognize that they do not have the tools, nor are they interested in gaining the tools to meet us where we need to be met in order to have our like feelings of love and care and safety right. fulfilled. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a grief in that. I, you know, I think uh, the grief around that sort of thing is very, very palpable. Like the grief you were talking about in losing a relationship that took up space as something very, very important to you as the result of a sexual assault, like makes a lot of sense. Nobody died, but in an essence, like your relationship with that person died. It is over. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, like you have to grieve not only the loss of that support system, but the loss of your idea of what that relationship meant, right? which was that there was like safety in the world. The safety could come from a man right. in this particular way. And that this person maybe was someone that wouldn't do that to you. Right. I'm making some jumps in logic, but you're, but, yeah, no, you're spot on. Yeah. But yeah, just to illustrate like different types of grief. So I think generally, yeah. Um, it's good that we're having a conversation where we're talking about like grief as a much broader thing than someone or something that we were close to when I said something, I was thinking about animals, but like an animal or a a friend or someone dies Mm -hmm. and then there's grief. It's like, yeah, that's true. And also a lot more. Yeah. Um, I don't Uh, know. Does that sort of answer the question? Totally. Are you looking for more specifics? Because I have specifics too. Well, I mean, anything that you think is pertinent, I'm, I'm excited to hear about, but I think the reason why I asked that question was because first of all, I don't want to in any way mitigate the grief of a death. You know, that is so fucking traumatizing. Yes, absolutely. And it's, and I think for me, when I, like, I couldn't figure out for like my, you know, my entire twenties, <laughs> like, why mm-hmm. am I so sad all the time? Why do I mm. feel like I've just lost something all the time? And mm. 
it wasn't until I learned more about um, anxious attachment style that I kind of realized like when you, when your norm is a series of losses, um, <laughs> like, yeah, no shit. You come out just feeling so, um, it was, it was like, there was a void inside me. It was like, it was like this emptiness and this just like terrible mm-hmm. sadness inside all the time that didn't make sense to me. Cause like, maybe, you know, I, I, like I was in school and everything was good or like, um, I had gotten the job that I wanted or whatever things seemed good. Mm-hmm. And yet there was just this feeling of grief all the time that I couldn't explain. And so that's why I just wanted to shed some light on it because I think it's more grief is more common than we realize because it, it isn't, yeah. um, it isn't only about death, you know, it's about a lot of other things. So yeah, I appreciate, I, I, I appreciate where you're coming from on that, but I'm, but I'm open. Were there other, um, examples that came to mind for you of like, oh yeah, this is another way that we deal with grief. Oh, well, I was just going to, I mean, there's tons of ways, right? I think one of the things that we're probably circling around that we'll get to as we continue talking is that like, well, what is grief and how do people define it? And it's, it's a lot less linear and it's a lot less uh, regimented than I think a lot of people have in their minds. And so the examples that I had just thought of that I was going to pull up was, that, so Megan Devine, um, I don't know if you've heard of her work before, but she wrote a book called It's Okay, You're Not Okay, or It's Okay That You're Not Okay, mm. somewhere around those that wordage. Mm. But um, she also runs an Instagram called uh, Refuge in Grief. And one of the things that she posts constantly are about all these different things that are perfectly normal in grief. And a lot of the grief that she talks about is like losing someone very close to you. Mm. But, you know, she'll post something like losing the ability to focus and read is perfectly normal in grief or Mm. only watching things that they enjoyed before they died is perfectly normal in grief. Mm. Uh, Guilt around feeling better, needing to justify sadness. All those things are normal. And what does normal mean? And, you know, that could be a whole different discussion. But I would say, like, all of those things are perfectly understandable, perfectly reasonable reactions to a grief or a loss, which is to say, I kind of sit in the space of, like, you know, with compassion and understanding, kind of as long as we're not going out into the world and hurting other people purposefully as a result of our grief almost everything is understandable. Maybe some things are more helpful than others and certain reactions are more common than others, but like grief shows up in all sorts of ways and is different for every single person who experiences it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, and so I just want to, I love, um, this Insta account. Can you tell me again what it's called? Uh, it's at refuge in grief. Refuge, and the offer is refuge, refuge in grief. Refuge in grief. Yeah. Cool. Ooh, yep. ooh I'm going to start following and that. The, and the author is Megan Devine. Cool. Uh, and she wrote a whole book about it. And she's got a workbook about it too. Cool. Awesome. Okay, cool. Okay. Yeah. I, I, okay. Recently I had a panic attack because I was feeling like, I just, I just, God, maybe this was more like a premonition because I, this was before the SCOTUS leak, but I was like, I could experience a loss mm-hmm. at any moment. Um, and it was, and it felt like very, like, I don't have control. Right. And so 
it, it was really out of nowhere and really sort of shocking to me, but like, what are some of the trauma responses that we m- might fall into while grieving a loss and how, and how might we work with those? Uh, so this is going to be uh, maybe an annoying answer. Uh, any of the trauma responses, they all could come up and the way to work with them would be exactly the way you'd work with them if they came up otherwise. So that's sort of an annoying answer, right? But it's like, this thing that you're talking about is like if you went into fight, flight, or freeze, if you went into fawn, if you fainted, right? If you tried to befriend someone, all of those things would make sense as a grief response. Mm. And how you deal with it is individual in terms of like, okay, getting back into our window of tolerance or like how do we soothe ourselves through that stuff. But so talk about window answer- about window of tolerance, because maybe people don't aren't familiar with that. Sure, sure, sure. So window of tolerance is kind of this idea of like, when we think about trauma, a lot of the times what we're talking about, uh, at least in like clinical psychotherapy is like an overwhelm of the nervous system or an overwhelm of system resources, right? Like something, some catalyst, some impetus, something that happened has taken us out of this little uh, window of tolerance, as we often call it, where like we can tolerate distress or uh, bad things happening to us, or, you know, unhappiness or whatever. But when the agitation in our system, and when the our nervous system kind of get into a state of overwhelm, and we're outside of that window, a bunch of different things sort of start happening in our brain, right? Uh, our prefrontal cortex has different difficulty talking to other parts of our brain, a lot of the time emotions and self protection can come over and the part of your brain that goes all the way back to like evolutionary evolutionary biology that wants to protect us uh, can often take us into fight, flight, or freeze, right? Mm-hmm. So more simply, it's basically saying like, sometimes we're walking around in the world, our brain recognizes something, takes us out of what we call our window of tolerance and into like a feeling of, oh, fuck, we are in danger. Oh, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but whatever. Oh, yeah, you uh, totally oh, are. <laughs> yes. Right. Oh, fuck. We are in danger. What do we do? And it's not about like logic or reasoning or rationale. It's about our brain going like, okay, we're in danger. I'm going to freeze. Okay, we're in danger. I'm going to run away. Right. And so bringing folks back into the window of tolerance can look a lot of different ways. But when we're doing it for ourselves, it's a lot about like somatic work giving ourselves space to breathe and reset that nervous system, providing a feeling of safety, giving ourselves some time so that we can regulate ourselves a little better. Mm. I feel like I just word jumbled all of that. Was that all making sense? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And so if we experience when, okay, when we experience grief, cause I think we all will at some point when we experience mm-hmm. grief, we, we could go into fight. For example, we could go into, sure. um, like escapism, flight, uh, we could go into fawn. You're saying any of those. That's so interesting. I never thought about going into fight from grief. Is that like, what might that look uh, like causing arguments with people or what is, what would that be? Uh, think about in cinema when uh, men who are going through a traumatic loss 
go to a bar, get drunk, and fight someone just so they can fight someone. Oh, right? that's why. Okay, yes. Interesting. Yeah, because I guess I never thought about it because I don't have a lot of relationships with men. <laughs> right, right. Uh, See, that's, that's why I pulled up the thing in cinema. There could be that, or it could also be something like, have you ever seen someone gets told their son or daughter or their child uh, is dead? And the person being told gets like punched and hit a bunch or like, no, that's not true. Or the person gets angry about it. Right. right? It doesn't have to actually be a physical fight. But like, I think we all know folks that when they get bad news, they just get angry immediately. Yeah. That could be a trauma response, right? Right. We're just, we're so overwhelmed. We're out of this window of tolerance that what feels good? How do we protect ourselves according to our brain? Fight. Fight it. Right. Argue. Get mad. Yell. Make it someone's fault. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And yeah, but but in other words, we could do any of the things. We could fight, f- flight, freeze, which maybe would look like just not being able to like get out of bed or something like that. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or I mean, fawn. Fawn is what fawn is what I did. Uh, you know, uh, through a series of significant losses including like the death of my father which was like you know he had alzheimer's and it was a whole thing because alzheimer's is a fucking nightmare right right like the way that i dealt with that and i wouldn't even necessarily i wouldn't go so far as to say it was a trauma response but it was definitely trauma related based on how i grew up was to take care of everyone else right i don't have to feel the pain of this loss if I am very focused on making sure my mother is okay and making sure my sister is okay, making sure the, the nieces and nephews are okay and making sure the funeral arrangements are set. And did we get the flowers and that sort of stuff? Mm-hmm. And so like, it's a little bit of distraction, but it's also a little bit of like, Oh, I'll take care of you. Let me take care of it. Let me soothe the situation. Like to me, that feels very fawning. And that's what I did. Whoa, so, totally. Yeah. I think all this stuff is kind of fair, you know? Right. It's fair game out there. Fair game out there in in grief land. Okay. A friend of mine recently um, had two miscarriages while she was trying to get pregnant. She's she's pregnant now, but she told me that she feels like she has to stay hypervigilant and worried all the time as a way of protecting the pregnancy. And it made me think about something I've noticed I do following a major loss. I stop myself from getting excited about things because I'm so traumatized by the previous loss that I want to prevent myself from potentially experiencing that grief again. Right. You know, this goes back Mm -hmm. to kind of what I was talking about around having hope for things. So, you know, Mm -hmm. these are defense mechanisms, right. That we take on to (laughs) to prevent ourselves from experiencing pain. Can you talk about that? Like about the defense mechanisms that we take on. And I, I guess my question is like, how do we open ourselves up to joy again and allow ourselves to be vulnerable after experiencing these painful losses. And I I guess like another way of saying this is like, how do we trust life again in the face of grief? It's a good question. And it's, it's hard, but a lot of the, a lot of what you're talking about. So there's, okay. I want to break this down into two things. That feeling that you're talking about of like something bad happens in the past. I'm in a similar situation like the pregnancy, right? Had two miscarriages. Now I feel like I need to be hypervigilant lest I miscarry, mm-hmm. right? right? Or lest something bad happens. Right. That's 
very understandable. I, I hesitate to use the word normal because, you know, what the fuck does normal mean? But that's very understandable, very common. Mm-hmm. Because we do that. We try to keep ourselves from danger, from hurt, from these things that, like, rip us up. So it's understandable to be wary of that stuff. To the question of, like, how do we open ourselves up to joy again after a significant loss? I'll say, like, well, it's hard. It's probably going to take a minute. But it's one of those things where it's like, I think grief and especially major significant losses uh, do a really good job of blowing away what is our cultural understanding that things are very black and white and moves it into what I think is a more realistic understanding, which is that things are very, very gray and very complex and multiple things can be true at once. So what does all that mean? Well, I think for a lot of folks, especially folks who are fortunate enough to get into, you know, their late 20s, early 30s without having experienced a significant loss, tend to think or tend to have an idea that they cannot be happy and also grieving a loss, Mm. or they cannot experience joy and also grieve a loss, or they cannot have a good time too close to the time in which they experience a loss, Mm. lest the feeling of that loss be somehow changed, right? Mm. And I think what big losses do to us when we process them, I don't know, well, I guess, is they allow us the ability for more complexity in our own experience, which is to say, like, I've experienced these terrible things or these things that hurt me so deeply. That is true. And also, I am still alive and therefore still able to experience more joy in the future, which is also true. Mm. And I don't want to let my previous experiences of discomfort or pain or sorrow take away from future experiences of joy. Mm. How do I trust that joy? A lot of work, but I think it's a lot of also understanding that, like, just because you feel joyful in one moment doesn't mean you can't also feel sad in another moment. Mm. Just because you're grieving doesn't mean you can't go have fun with your friends and then come back home and feel sad. Mm. And so I think the more folks get get used to that and get accustomed to the wide sort of roller coaster of human emotion and feeling, including around grief and loss, the easier it is to start trusting that joy when it comes back up. It was a long-winded answer, but did that make any sense? Oh, I love long-winded answers. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. Um, I think I'm I'm just sort of sitting with like this question around, because you said something really cool, which was this idea of trusting joy. And it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a little different from the question that I asked, but it's a really, that's our entry point, right? The the answer to like, how do we trust life again in the face of grief is trusting joy. And then the question becomes, how do we trust joy when we know that we could also, it could be taken away. And so maybe the, the answer to that is like, it will be taken away and then it will, it will come back. That's absolutely how it works. You won't always feel um, exhilaration <laughs> in every yeah. moment of your life. 
and that's okay. Like maybe it's this acceptance. It's like an acceptance that this life that we're in this, this human experience necessitates all of it. And so if you're feeling grief and you ask yourself, how can I trust a joy that, that wants to, to happen? If I feel myself wanting to go toward joy, how do I trust it? Knowing that it could be taken away. Maybe the answer is like, yeah, know that it can be taken away and that it will be, and that it will come back. That's just what we're here to do. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah, no, I think that's a lot of it. And I also want to say too, that like, I don't think you even need to trust the joy. Like you kind of just have to allow, like, it's almost about opening yourself up to opportunities to experience it again, right? If you close that door and say, I'm going to stay in a room forever with no joyful opportunities, then like, it's, it's probably reasonable that you're not going to experience the joy. But like, if you make yourself open to them, you don't even necessarily have to trust them, but it starts to get less painful to experience things outside of the grief, you know? And it's, yeah, it's like you said, there's, there's a feeling, I think, a lot of the times in this culture that we either must be happy or something is wrong. Right. And I, I, I do not believe that happiness or contentment is a resting state, just as I don't believe joy is. And I do believe you can carry around grief for a long time. So it's complicated. Yeah. I want to just take one second to repeat what you said so I can like give it some space. It was... You don't have to trust joy. You just have to be open to allowing it. Is that what it was? Yeah. And I would even go further to say, like, you know, if that's not available to you, if you're experiencing a loss and, like, the idea of someone saying, like, allow yourself the opportunity to experience joy feels hurtful or you're not there yet. Right. That's also okay. Self-compassion and give yourself time. You know, that's maybe I should have led with self-compassion and give yourself time. But, like. Grief is nonlinear. There's no amount of time and there's really no roadmap for this shit, you know? So like be easy with yourself and try to open the door up to other stuff. It'll make it easier. Yeah. I hear that. If you're not ready for joy, (laughs) like fucking Mm -hmm. don't do, don't do it. (laughs) No, no pressure, no pressure around joy. Yeah. But if you are like, I want to do joy, but I don't trust, I don't trust it. Cause I think, yeah. Um, right. Have compassion for that too. I think that's really good. Yeah. Can yeah. you talk about the stages of grief? Cause I hear about them all the time. Like what are those and how do they work? Yeah. So if you, yeah. So here's the thing. Well, am I blowing away the train? All right. I'm about to break the fourth wall. Are we fucking ready? Uh, <laughs> but like, So you send me a list of questions, which is a wonderful thing to do on a podcast so I can prepare. And number, and this one, which is like talk about the stages of the grief, is the one that I've been thinking about the most since you sent it to me. Okay. And it is because I have feelings about it. Okay. But how do I express those feelings in a way that is kind on a podcast that will be aired publicly? Wait, so you don't, and that's totally, I'm like interested in all perspectives. So you don't think that it's that helpful? No. Yeah. So, yeah. So that being said, no, if you could take away one thing from this podcast, I would say, uh, please stop talking. Not you specifically. This is to the culture. Yeah. Uh, Please stop talking about stages of grief. Okay. Uh, It is it is not helpful. Oh, Uh, it has been 
misinterpreted via culture for so long okay. that people don't really know what it is anymore. It wasn't really designed for how people use it. Oh. And there is and and it has not been my experience to be as either someone who has experienced quite a bit of grief and has uh Cou- counsel other people, people through grief. Right. Yeah, uh, not helpful at all. Well, in that case, I think it's actually great that I asked this question because no, no, totally. Yeah, because I want to hear about why that is. Why, like, what about it isn't helpful? And like, because because in that in asking that question, we'll find what is helpful. So yeah, so so tell me what what you hate about it. (laughs) It's not even so much hate. It's just like what happens to this idea in our culture. So this idea about the five stages of grief they come from Elizabeth Kubler Ross. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not an expert in Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and also, if anyone hears this and I've fucked up some details, I apologize. I'm doing my best. But basically, she was, like, working in hospices and stuff. She wrote this book in 1975, On Death and Dying, which talks about the five stages of grief. So, um, was it uh, uh, denial, acceptance, bargaining, uh, depression, and I, I, don't, I honestly don't even know the other one because okay. I don't use it. Okay. Um, But the whole point of her writing that book was it was based on terminally ill folks Mm -hmm. who were describing different stages that they went through in their own process of coming to accept their own death. Ah. So they would go through denial, bargain, like all these things, right? Okay. Um, Because we live in a society, and so so that's true. That is true fact. Here's some of my interpretation and bias. Because we live in a society that is so terrible at talking about death and talking about grief, uh, what sort of happened was she wrote this book and it goes, ooh, five stages of grief. And people go, oh, well, that's an easy to implement Mm. solution for stuff. Let me incorporate these five stages of grief into all of my different methods on how I think people should process and heal grief. So Elizabeth uh, Kubler-Ross writes this thing. Other people pick it up and start writing grief books and shit about it, right? Okay. It's still not really validated, like, with a bunch of evidence. And also, it never was supposed to be designed to tell other folks how to grieve. It was for people grieving their own death. Mm. Um, Eventually, towards the very end of her life, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross gets together with, um, oh, God, what's his name? Uh, uh, David Kessler, who's, like, a big grief guy. And after years and years and years of other people writing about the five stages, you hear it in pop culture all the time, right? right? Like when people talk about the five stages of grief, there's jokes about it. Eventually, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and Jonathan, or not Jonathan, uh, David Kessler write their own book about it, about how it wasn't really about progressing through the five stages. It wasn't about those being those stages. These are just common things that come up for people, right? So the literal fucking author of the five stages writes another book many years later that just was like, one, it's not just these five stages. Two, there is no order to the five stages. Mm. Three, y'all were not paying attention when I said this was coming up for people that are dying themselves. Uh And four, please stop trying to make grief linear. Right. All of that is to say, right, like any of the five stages that you hear about, so denial, anger, acceptance, bargaining, and whatever the one I'm missing is, right? Uh Of course those things can come up. 
in grief. Mm-hmm. It makes total sense that somebody would deny it, that somebody would try to bargain out of it, that somebody would be angry, that somebody would be depressed, that somebody that somebody would accept it, right? Right. But the idea that those come in orders right. that are specifically set, not true. And the idea that somebody has to experience every single one of those, not true. The idea that somebody has to experience any of those, mostly not true. At some point, you kind of have to accept that somebody died, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> sure. like, so that was a very long-winded way to say, like, in our culture, which is super bad at talking about grief and dying, somebody wrote a book in 1975 about a specific experience. It got into the zeitgeist. Right. It was a very popular and easy to digest thing about the nature of this really hard thing that nobody wants to talk about. And it is the only cultural touchstone for it. But as far as the actual work that I do, I don't even fucking touch that. Okay. Shit. And I don't recommend that people do. Cool. That's helpful. Cause I think what I'm getting out of it that, you know, whatever feelings on the stages aside, what I'm getting out of it that actually I think could be useful in how I approach my own grief is reminding myself that it's not linear and that it can be very surprising and um, that any, anything that comes up for me in that process is a legitimate part of my grief process. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You nailed it. Megan Devine would say you fucking nailed it. Okay, great. <laughs> well, maybe not. I don't know. I don't want to speak. I don't want to speak for other people. But yeah. Well, exactly. It really is nonlinear, and almost anything that comes up as a feeling of somebody that's grieving makes sense. Yeah. You're lost. And I'll, I guess I what I one thing I'll say about that is um, I mentioned the, the loss of my friend after a sexual assault, and mm-hmm. I had an experience maybe maybe a month ago, maybe not even a month. And, you know, this assault happened um, five years ago and I've done tons of therapy and I've written like I, you know, I, I wrote a personal essay about it for Marie Claire. I've, I've done all this um, grief work and sort of, you know, resetting and a month ago, having not had feelings about it for mm-hmm. a very long time, I suddenly was, was overwhelmed with the sense of loss that came with that experience. And I was in bed and I just started crying and I was like, what part of the grief process is this? Cause <laughs> like this. Well, yeah. And exactly. Right. Cause there's, there's no process like that, but sorry, please continue. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I appreciate hearing that it's nonlinear and you hear that too, you know, like um, grief or I, I don't know if actually grief is the word that they use, but um, trauma, whatever, that, that there's like a, a, it's a spiral. It's not linear. It's a spiral, right? Like you may, you'll move mm-hmm. forward, but you're going to revisit some of that stuff as you move through. I, I appreciate that so much because that is literally what happened to me about a month ago. I was like, yeah. where the fuck is this coming from? And what is it about and why, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. So, what, yeah. I'm so I'm so happy you shared that. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to step over you. No, no, go ahead. Yeah. I'm so happy you shared that too. Cause it's like, well, yeah, that's why I like, I love talking about this stuff. Cause it's like, 
imagine if the understanding about grief was not this like cultural understanding that it's supposed to be in stages or look a specific way but imagine if everyone knew that like this thing that you were experiencing where it was like oh shit i'm feeling this profound loss and like having an emotional reaction to it like what if everyone knew that that was okay and that that was part of grief right right yeah and it's like that's why that's why I like talking about this stuff because like it, it allows more self-compassion, you know, it allows right. more acceptance of the process that sometimes it just feels the way the shit feels. And sometimes the shit feels bad. Yeah. And sometimes it doesn't make sense why it feels bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like to, I like your, I, I describe it often either as like a roller coaster or like waves that we're on. And sometimes we're going up a big hill on the roller coaster. Sometimes we're coming down. Sometimes the waves are big. Sometimes they're small. Right. And then sometimes you thought you got off the roller coaster, but then mm-hmm. you're still on it and you didn't know that, <laughs> that, you know, yeah. I think that's what it felt like for me was I was like, well, I, I really thought this was behind me. What's happening. So, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I appreciate, I appreciate, you know, fuck the stages of grief. I don't know. Great. Um, <laughs> okay. Great. Uh, my last question in your experience, what tools are most mm-hmm. effective in helping us heal grief? And I know that's just kind of a big one, but like, are there specific things that, that, you know, anyone who's in a grief process maybe could look to for, for help? Yeah. I would say, you know, well, first I'm going to be, you know, the, like heal grief. What does that look like? Right. Um, yeah. I think when we're talking about healing grief, it's like what we're really saying is like, how do we support ourselves mm-hmm. in grief? Because like, do we ever really heal grief? Mm. I don't know. Like some people would argue uh, that like you just integrate it into your new identity. Ooh, I like you know, that. I'm, I'm a little bit part of that camp. I kind of feel that way. But I also sort of feel that people get to grieve however they want to grieve, mm-hmm. right? But to your more specific question, I think what really, especially in the culture in the United States, what really makes the suffering around grief worse is the isolation. Mm-hmm. And it's specifically an isolation that's not always physical. So it's not always locking yourself up in a room. Often it's the isolation of the experience, which is to say, when I was a young, when I was a young man, as if I, I am now 35 and therefore dead. Uh, (laughs) But uh, when I was, when I was like in my, when I was 22, right. And my father had Alzheimer's. It was very difficult for me to talk about that experience with people. Mm -hmm. Couldn't talk about it with peers. Couldn't talk about it like with other folks who had, uh, family with Alzheimer's, right? Like it was difficult and it created an isolation that made things a lot worse. Mm -hmm. So I would say if there's one thing that I would recommend, it's like connection of some kind, ways to fight off the isolation, whatever that means to you. So if you're a person who plays video games in a community, great. Mm -hmm. If you're a person who wants to do a bunch of things to be around other people, great. But even more importantly, Talking to somebody or expressing those feelings creatively mm-hmm. or easing that sense of isolation that I am the only person going through this or this pain feels so big for me to can't take, carry on my own mm-hmm. is like the first thing that I usually recommend to folks. Mm-hmm. Like, 
what works for for everyone i don't know it's kind of different for everyone sure but i know for sure that isolation makes the pain more severe and connection eases that mm. more often than it doesn't right when i think back on well i have two thoughts one is going like post assault um i wasn't talking to anyone about it i mean I, uh, until I got a therapist, which happened months into it, like months after the fact. Um, But yeah, a lot of it was like, uh, I, you know what, what happened was I started drinking by myself every night. And Mm. that was like a new behavior for sure. And um, I also um, started to think that I wouldn't ever be able to have sex again. And Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. really freaked me out. And like, I was living in a town where I didn't know anyone. And I had, Mm -hmm. I had recently moved there and this person was like my only friend in the town. And so like, I, Mm -hmm. it was extreme isolation. And I think, and I'll, I'll speak to this other thing. Cause I don't know, like, like maybe other people can relate to this, but part of my role in my household, like I mentioned, my mom was my primary caretaker and she was really unpredictable emotionally. And so my role became making everyone else feel better. And, mm. um, Ooh, me too. Oh, Remy, yeah. come on. <laughs> you know it. Sorry. I'm just, that's you me. know, it. that's just me resonating. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know how fucked it is because then when you go through something, you don't know how to say, I need help. I'm in a lot of pain because you're not supposed to be in pain. You're supposed to be helping mm-hmm. other people with their pain. And also mm-hmm. I learned I'm not lovable unless I'm happy all the time. That's my job. That's how I get love and approval and belonging. And so mm-hmm. the isolation part for, you know, for anyone out there who's listening, who can relate to having grown up in that kind of um, dynamic as a child, or if you have anyone close to you who did, it's just helpful to know, like, yeah, when you go through your shit, it's hard to, to, to not isolate because you don't want yeah. anyone to see that you're sad or depressed or having suicidal ideation or whatever, because then that like the, the fear mm-hmm. me of like, then I won't be loved was so intense. Oh yeah. Then I won't be loved. Then I'll be a burden. Right. Other people don't want to hear about a death. I don't want to make them sad. Right. Could be so many things. I also want to, I want to take a moment just to, not that I, this is my own anxiety thing. Like if you're in a place where like, you're still isolating because you're grieving that's okay right that's all right some people need to do that too and i would also add if i could like self-compassion and reminding yourself that like it fucking sucks as much as it feels like it sucks and that that's okay and we can still try to be good to ourselves is really important and also that that's not accessible for a lot of people right away Mm. and that's okay too yeah yeah and maybe there's a difference between isolating and taking time for yourself that you need you know like yeah and and also i guess i'll say here's another thing that i learned the hard way if you are grieving and you're like oh i'm i you know, I don't want to isolate. I want to connect. Just be mindful about who you connect with because not everyone is in a space where they can hold, like hold space for you. 
And very true. Sometimes that's another reason why I think therapy is a really great place and also cuddle therapy, because these are people who are trained and can hold space for you in the way that you need versus telling you like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger or, um, you know, this is what God wants or, you know, (laughs) whatever the fuck. I mean, oh, oh boy. The platitudes around loss and grief and even like from therapists sometimes truly that stuff makes me sad, but you know, that's another podcast too. Right. Yeah. So, so just understand maybe the, the, the tool here is check in with yourself and understand when you're isolating versus when you're taking space for yourself, that's healthy, that you need. And then when you're ready to connect, um, being mindful about who you connect with and kind of maybe saying to yourself, okay, when I connect with someone about this, these are the things that I need. And, um, maybe you share that with someone, maybe you share that with your therapist first or with a friend or, um, whatever. And also just like, if you tried with connecting with someone and it didn't fucking work out being like, cool, like not going to do that with that person again, lesson learned, like, doesn't make them a bad person. It's just not the right person for me in this moment and um, finding someone else. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, totally. Kevin, thanks so much for coming on. I've really loved our conversation today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, for sure. And and if people want to connect with you, is there any how can they connect with you? Yeah, uh probably the easiest way is I have a little website, uh kevinbrodytherapy.com. Uh I imagine my name is like written in the episode, but K-E-V-I-N-B-R-O-D-Y therapy.com. Um there's contact forms there, email stuff if you want to reach out, but that's the easiest way to do it. Cool. And if you want to connect with me, I'm at patramaparty at gmail.com. I always love hearing from y'all. If there's a topic that you'd like me to cover or any thoughts, um, comments, anything, uh, yeah, send it my way. And if you feel like this podcast has been helpful for you, rate, review, subscribe. It really does help. And uh, yeah, till next time, baby. Enjoy the party. Bye. Thank you.